Welcome to No Finish Line, a podcast with John O'Regan, sponsored by Great Outdoors Dublin. I can just elevate myself. I can be calm and cool and collected under pressure. The first time I ran the 100K World Championship, I'm puking the final like 35K of the race. And I'm carrying my team, you know, the pressure's on me because I've been winning the race. And I start flashing back to, you know, being this kid in my driveway trying to learn how to shoot free throws like my dad taught me. And I just remember, you know, being able to focus and, you know, to have that focus and finesse to perform like in those moments. Uh, And I've always had that ability just, you know, having developed it from being a kid, so. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Finish Line podcast featuring athlete interviews and discussion on running, training, travelling and adventure and I'm your host John O'Regan. In this episode I'm joined by Camille Heron. Camille is the current 24-hour world champion and she's also the women's world record holder for 24 hours. That's referring to a 24-hour race and to explain what I mean by the 24-hour race It differs from a regular race where the objective is to cover a set distance in the shortest possible time, whereas in a 24-hour race you have a set time and the objective is to run the furthest distance in this time. The current world record now stands at 270.116 kilometres, but seeing as I'm interviewing Camille and she's from the US, that's 167.842 miles. This record was set at the 24-hour world championships in Albi, France back in 2019. This beat the previous world record of 262.116 kilometres, which is almost 163 miles, a record that was also held by Camille and set a little less than a year earlier in December 2018 during the Desert Saltus 24-hour race. She has had numerous other wins and successes, too many to list, but we will reference some of them as we get further into the podcast. Camille, welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you for having me, John. That was a great introduction there. Well, you've given me plenty to mention, so thank (laughs) you. Now, was 2018 your first attempt at the record? Yeah, I had actually tried to run my first 24-hour race in the spring of 2018, and uh, I had a bit of a bladder problem um, that I had to curtail it around uh, maybe nine hours or so. So yeah, I hadn't gone 24 hours yet, so my first attempt to run overnight and go for 24 hours was a desert solstice. And why did you think you had the ability to set a record at the 24 hours when it was an unfamiliar distance? Yeah, I think that there's more of a curiosity with uh, just knowing that I feel that I'm born to run. I feel I'm born for ultra running. And uh, to go further is, you know, it's a curious thing. It's kind of like just figuring out, you know, what's possible for me and uh, just continue running. And um, I mean, I love to run. It brings me a lot of great joy. I mean, everybody's known for uh, watching me with a big smile on my face. And uh, I mean, I just let the magic come out and just shine my light and just let that joy shine every time I run further. And uh, yeah, and I mean, obviously, I'm in a lot of pain and, uh, you know, pushing through pain and fatigue when I run. But, uh, but I mean, for me, it's a it's more of a curiosity thing than anything. Do you enjoy that pain and fatigue? 
I would say I like to suffer. Uh, we were, in fact, we we're just at an event here in the UK and we're talking about suffer better. Uh, so I'm somebody who, who really actually enjoys suffering. And uh, I mean, I like pushing my own human limits. And um, I mean, it's an exciting thing, you know, just uh, I feel grateful for this talent that I have and uh, being able to push my human limits and figure out what's possible for women. Setting a world record during the World Championships must have been amazing. But do you think attempting it during the World Championships added a bit of extra stress? There are no <laughs> expectations on you to perform like that. Yeah, I actually feel that uh, I really enjoy being on a, a huge stage like that. I consider myself a championship level runner. Um, I mean, I've been performing on a stage since I was five years old. So to me to go to a world championship or a race like Comrades, I mean, those are the races where I really elevate my game. And uh, I don't, I'm not somebody that gets nervous. I actually enjoy, uh, you know, having those moments and those opportunities. And I just want to make the most of them. In comparison to the Desert Saltus race, how did the conditions differ? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it was a little bit warmer at the World Championship, but uh, I had heat trained for it. I'd been training at midday with extra layers on. Uh, so everybody was really concerned about the heat and uh, trying to cool themselves off with ice and all that. But I was actually pretty comfortable. Uh, I think I maybe grabbed like a sponge maybe once or something like that. But uh, I felt I was pretty comfortable with the heat. Um, I know that Phoenix is a little bit higher in altitude and uh, pretty dry. Uh, so I think that just having to be like a little bit lower elevation in France and uh, it was, I guess, a little bit more humid than, than Phoenix. It was a little bit different. So um, yeah, but then obviously the courses were pretty different, you know, having to deal with 350 plus runners and weaving around people, uh, you know, on a road course versus on a track with 30 people. Uh, I mean, it was a pretty different course. I mean, I would say that the, the world championship was actually more challenging in terms of the course. Uh, but I mean, I didn't let that, that deter me from uh, knowing that I was in really, really good shape and knowing I could, was going to significantly better my own world records. And you bettered it by quite a lot. <laughs> and considering that you were probably adding a lot of more distance by going around people, you couldn't follow the race line. You were weaving around people, especially when you come into the home stretch along where the aid stations are. Do you think you would have performed even better if it was on a track with the same conditions? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's funny to look at your GPS watch uh, going in circles. Obviously, it's not going to be perfect. Um, but yeah, I mean, my, my watch showed 170 something miles. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just incredible to think that, you know, I ran what I did, you know, weaving around people. And uh, there were times that, you know, I got tripped by people. I was trying not to fall and have any sort of accidents. Um, I ended up bruising both hips, just running into people. Uh, and in fact, the first 30 miles, I, I had bruised my hips so bad and uh, had tweaked my knee from tripping on somebody. And, um, you know, just, just little things like that, you know, could throw off your race. But uh, I just had to be really careful the entire time. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'd love to have the opportunity now to get on a track and, uh, you know, just try to go much, much further. So... And are you happy enough with the record you got or will there be another attempt at that? 
I think there might be a couple more attempts. Uh, you know, my 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 personal goal is uh, to to do what Giannis Kouros did for the men, and uh, I mean, I want to run 170 plus miles, which I think is uh, 273 cl- plus kilometers. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I can really set it extremely high, uh, but I, you know, obviously the right conditions, the right, uh, being on a track, uh, I mean, it's just, there's a lot that goes into it. So yeah, Giannis's record is 303.506 kilometers and that record stood since 1997. And when he set that record, he actually said that it would stand for quite a time to come. <laughs> and in similar fashion, yeah, he has been beating his own records and that's his motivation. In some ways, it's compared to a runner going out and just looking to get a PB, but your PBs are now world records. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I mean, I, I'm definitely motivated to, you know, to run. Uh, I mean, I would say that it's not possible to run a perfect race, but I'm striving for excellence. Uh, so every time I run a 24-hour race, I learn more about, you know, what I could have done better. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just want to keep striving for that that level of excellence that, that Giannis had. You know, I think it took him 13 years to achieve what he achieved. And, uh, I mean, he really, you know, put everything into running what he did. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty grateful that I've run a world record here, you know, twice now at that distance, you know, just being a new, pretty new runner to this distance. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I will just keep trying to improve it. And based on your age, you probably still have another 10 to 15 years to improve on that, not to keep running, but to improve on that. There's a lot of runners that as they get experience at a distance, they improve. You just need to look at someone like Connie Gardner. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Connie. Uh, I had a, had a great talk with Connie Gardner. Um, I think, did she win the 24-hour World Championship maybe? or? I think she finished second in the World Championships in Katowice, Poland back in 2012. Uh, but yeah, I mean, she's one of my heroes in the sport and I uh, had a great conversation with her last fall and she looked at me and she said, you know, the next 10 years of my running career is going to be the best of my life. And um, I mean, I feel like I go out every day and I feel like I'm just as strong and as fast as I've ever been. Uh, and it's pretty exciting, you know, I mean, even though I'm, I feel like I could always improve my marathon PR, but you you know, it's kind of like, well, why would I do the marathon when I can go, you know, further and uh, find out, you know, what's possible pushing my human limits that way. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm always tempted thinking, you know, well, what could I run in the marathon? But uh, when I when it really comes down to what inspires me, I really just want to go longer and, and figure out what's possible for, you know, up to a thousand miles. So would you say you focus on the success, the end game, or do you focus on the process of getting there? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think that you have to enjoy the process of getting there. I mean, when, when we started planning for the 24 hour world championship was last July and I was coming back from a hamstring injury and I knew I just had to take it a day at a time to develop myself. And uh, I think we had 15 weeks of, you know, just trying to get there. And, uh, the first month was just aerobic development. And every day I was just, you know, just trying to trying to focus on my body and just trying to be a little bit better, you know, every day and trying to stay healthy. I mean, for, for me, it's a huge part. What I do is, you know, I'm pushing my own human limits and uh, I've had some injuries, uh, mostly just freak accidents. I don't really break down from actual training, but, uh, you know, it's the random things that can happen. And so you're, you almost have to wrap me in bubble wrap <laughs> to keep me healthy. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a process. And I mean, I, I think my 
lucky stars that I got to the world championship this year and everything aligned. And, uh, and I mean, I just had to really gut it out during the race, but, um, I mean, all that work behind it is what really motivated me, you know, when the going got tough. So. And it was great that you were there because you made a very, very exciting race. <laughs> at, at one one stage, I think we would have been taking bets on you being the overall winner. And that's how it was looking. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think the funny thing about the World Championship was I actually thought that the, the loop was... Uh, what was it, 1,400 meters? I thought it was 1,400 meters because of where the marker was uh, where we started. So I thought they were taking 1,400 meter splits. So when I was getting my splits, thinking it was 1,400 meter splits, it was actually 15 or just under 1,500 meter splits. So I was I was a little bit panicking, thinking, oh, oh, I'm going too slow, but I actually was going like 20 to 30 seconds too fast. Okay, and that could have really, really messed up a race <laughs> at that distance. So I didn't realize the mistake until I hit 100K and and realized, oh my gosh, that was like 20 minutes faster. And then it dawned on me that it was 1,500 splits. So uh, I actually backed off the pace after that. Um, but I mean, that was that was part of why I was so close to the men. I actually didn't know I was close that close to the men until after the race. But uh, yeah, it would have been interesting if I had paced myself differently. So... Yeah, definitely. So that was a strategic error and it was one you <laughs> was couldn't really account for. Yeah. <laughs> During that race, was there any point in where you felt like giving up? Oh, gosh, no, never, never. I mean, it was not that was I was just not ever on my mind. I mean, there were I knew that I accepted before the race that I was going to have challenges and roadblocks that I was going to have to work through. And I mean, that's part of the 24 hour race. Uh, you know, even every single world record I've run has not been a perfect race by any means. I've had to push through a whole lot of stuff. And so I accept before the race that it's going to hurt. I'm going to have to push through options obstacles and who knows you know every time you run a race new challenges you know pop up so um I accepted that before the race and obviously I had to push through a whole lot of pain and grit to to run what I did so and I was there to witness that so I can <laughs> clarify all that and I suppose one of the reasons why you keep going is because you're part of a team you weren't just there on your own oh yeah so definitely there's there a lot of responsibility with this one unlike with the desert saltist where you had the target of beating someone else's record and just to mention, the record that you had beaten was uh, was Patricia Berlusnowski from Poland, and that was 259.991 kilometres. And she said that in Belfast back in 2017. And what I, what I think of it, you've actually beaten that by quite a significant amount. And we had mentioned Diana's chorus, and he wanted to set a possibly unbeatable world record. Do you have something similar in mind that you want to set a record that will be very, very hard for somebody to touch and they'll be trying for it for years to come. Absolutely. I mean, I, I feel like I'm born with a gift and I just want to go and push my own limits as far as I can and and to achieve that level of excellence that Giannis did for 24 hours. And I feel like 24 hours is like something that you can really wrap your head around because uh, you're working through a day and you're working through all the challenges in a day. And um, I feel like it's kind of like it's kind of like human chess almost like you're trying to make all the right moves and um 
Um, and yeah, I mean, it's for somebody like me, that's a little bit of a mental geek. Like I, you know, I'm a very cerebral person. Um, I like all the, to think, trying to troubleshoot all those challenges that you're working through in a day. Uh, and so for me, I mean, of all the different distances and world records I could go for, I feel like 24 hours is kind of the, the ultimate distance to try and set an untouchable type of record. And can you hazard a guess as to what a record might be? <laughs> Uh, I I kind of have a in my mind that 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 my what what my human potential is is going to be between 170 to 175 miles. Um, I think I've done some sort of calculation, uh, a differential off of Giannis, but um, but yeah, I mean, I I don't know what that is in kilometers. Actually, <laughs> we might have to convert that. It might be 273 to uh, what is it? 200 close to 282. Okay, maybe I might be off there. You can aim a little bit higher, I think. <laughs> I may, I could maybe aim a little bit higher. Uh, it's incredible what I did at the World Championship because I had so many GI issues and nutritional and took two power naps. And um, I mean, my actual moving pace of the World Championship puts me at about 174 miles. Um, so, I mean, if I hadn't lost all that time with everything I was experiencing, I was going to run what I feel is my human potential. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I've just got to, you know, keep trying and get the right opportunity. And, uh, definitely, I mean, we learned a lot. Uh, we had been, we'd been trying new nutritional products at the world championship and things just were not settling well with my gut. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I just definitely, but fortunately, I mean, we were able to troubleshoot my nutrition and uh, get my gut to calm down in the middle of the race. And I mean, that was such a huge difference maker. So I got to give credit to my husband, Connor, for uh, for helping me uh, get my gut happy. <laughs> well, before the race, I wouldn't have expected to see somebody running 270 kilometers. <laughs> I'm thinking now that it's almost like when the four minute mile was first broken. Nobody said it could be done until it was done. And that was 6th of May, 1954. But after that was done, it was broken within two or three months by the John Landy and Roger Bannister broke it together in a race. And since then, it has been broken over 1,400 times. Wow. And I think, <laughs> I'm not sure what the current world record is, but I think it could be around 343. Maybe what you're doing by setting this mark is you're not so much showing people how to do it, but you're letting them see it can be done. So maybe now you're going to have a lot more people actually chasing you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would love, I think the thing that was exciting for me at the World Championship was uh, I was putting the pressure on the men and you could see a, a change in their demeanor during the race that they had to step up their game because they didn't want to get beaten by me. And uh, I mean, when you look at the final results, I mean, it was all these personal bests and national records. And um, yeah, I mean, I would love to see more more women try and step it up as well. But um, obviously, I, I think I have a pretty unique talent as well, like Giannis Kroos did. Most definitely. <laughs> but you're a good influence to your competition because I think it's it's going to encourage more women to actually make that attempt. And it has been proven that women are more successful at the longer distances. And it might be just a case of not having the belief to actually take part in them. But when they see others like yourself, that's going to inspire them to actually take that chance. Absolutely. And I, you, you probably need yeah. that bit of competition to push you along as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm motivated pretty intrinsically, you know, by just my own effort and just trying to get the most out of myself. Um, But yeah, I mean, it it was really an honor for me to be at the World Championship and have really good men as well, you know, trying to push me. And um, but I felt like in the moment, I was so focused on my own internal effort that I didn't know where the other men were uh, until after the race. I think I may have passed uh, Ivan Lopez. I think I may have passed him at one point like on the last lap or something like that and then I think he he realized I'd passed him and at some point I don't remember when he passed me back but um but I mean it's it's pretty crazy to come down you know a 24-hour race and come down to the last lap like that and then realize you're actually racing somebody and um so so yeah I mean it I think if I was on a track and I wouldn't have had I would have had less people that that maybe the competitor in me would have come out a bit more with, with having the men like that so like I said it made a very very exciting race and although you said a lot of men set PBs I'd say a lot also burnt up and fell back like the race was gone from early because it was a very very fast paced race there's no doubt about that the girls that we mentioned who are actually following you there's a term standing on the shoulders of joints they're looking at what you're doing how you're training listening to your interviews and podcasts and you give a lot of away you're very very helpful you didn't have the same people to look up to so you were one of the pioneers was there someone that you were actually inspired by on your ultra running journey? Uh yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, I would say for my first 100K, I broke one of Ann Trayson's records. And I didn't really know who Ann Trayson was uh, until uh, they told me I'd broken one of her records. And I actually had to Google who she was at work. And, um, you know, just reading up on her career. I mean, she's definitely been a huge inspiration for me. Um, and I wanted to fall into her footsteps because the first part of her career was more focused on records and road ultras and she got more into trail running um, as she got further along in her career so I kind of thought you know me being 38 years old right now I felt like I needed to focus more on the road ultras uh, the speed records and uh, the competitive races like comrades and two oceans and the 100k and the 24 hours Um, I felt like I needed to focus on those more but I see my career progressing more into trail running and I want to be able to to do it all to cross as many different distances as I can. Um, I, I want to go further too. Uh, I know that Ann Trayson had run up to 24 hours, but I want to pave my own path, uh, being able to, to go further up to a thousand miles. Um, and then, you know, do something really crazy, like run across America, uh, do the, the Sri Chermoy 3,100 mile, uh, race in, in New York city. So I want to do some really long stuff, but I also want to do trail. I just want to cover it all pretty much. So, yeah, I mean, I see myself as a versatile athlete that could go any distance, any surface. And, um, I think the next 10 years of my career is going to be pretty exciting to see, you know, how far I go, you know, what surfaces I cover and how fast so as well as an athlete you're also a highly qualified coach are you coaching or just for your own personal use you know considering everything that I've been doing that uh, I've had so many requests over the years uh, about coaching and I finally decided to, p- to pull the plug with my husband Connor and we started our coaching business here a year and a half ago uh, so our coaching website is runwithcamille.com and uh, we've been able to guide a lot of people uh, wanting to get into ultra running or just 
wanting to meet whatever their personal goals. I mean, we coach all different abilities and people all over the world. And uh, it's been a, it's been quite a treat, you know, to guide people. Uh, I mean, I, I've, I get just as thrilled, you know, that somebody, you know, uh, did something amazing, you know, that they didn't think was possible. So I, I get excited for them, you know, just maybe more so than I do for myself. So did you meet any of your coast athletes at the World Championship? Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we've got runners from all over Ireland, the UK. I mean, there's a gal from Serbia that was at the World Championship that holds the Serbian 24-hour record. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, we've been able to coach people. It's pretty cool to, you know, coach people from uh, international uh, countries that uh, that they don't have that sort of guidance, you know, where they're at and to coach them to national records and age group and uh, yeah, I mean, it's that's been the cool thing for us is we've been able to to give back to the sport and uh, coach all these people, you know, just show them the way that, you know, has brought me success. So, yeah, it's great being able to give something back. And while you're giving something back, you're still performing as an athlete. You're one of these coaches that has skin in the game <laughs> and you're proving what you're doing. Yeah, well, I uh, I got to give credit to my husband Connor uh, because he he helps me manage the coaching side of our uh, what we're doing. Uh, but but yeah, I'm I'm pretty much the brains behind our coaching and uh, helping to develop you know plans for people. So, uh, but Connor manages a lot of the communication and uh, the the technology side of things. So, I'm going to take a big big step back. In May 1999, age 18, you were caught in the middle of a natural disaster when your family home was hit by a tornado. Most of your possessions were destroyed, but a running book survived. And that was The Law of Running by Dr. Tim Noakes. Now that made sense to me because I was kind of wondering how you learned about ultra running and that. And there's a lot in that book about ultra running. So somebody coming from a track and field background, this was, I suppose, like reading Lord of the Rings. (laughs) And is that where you first heard about the comrades? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, So my first running book was Lore of Running by Timothy Noakes. And I got to give credit to my dad because my dad has a good eye for running books. And so that ended up being my first running book. Well, for anybody that has this book, it's like two to three inches thick. And there's a lot of science in that book. And I couldn't comprehend all the science when I got that book in junior high. So I'm, you know, a 13, 14 year old trying to digest everything. But I could comprehend the stories uh, reading about these heroes of the Comrades Marathon uh, because Timothy Noakes is from South Africa and he went in, in depth about uh, all these heroes of comrades. So I remember reading about Bruce Fordyce and, and thinking, you know, how in the world does he go, you know, 55 miles? Uh, you know, is he eating all day? Like, is he having ham sandwiches? Like, I mean, it was a really intriguing thing for me, you know, getting into running and reading about, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that people actually did that. <laughs> so, uh, so I mean, I think the seed was already planted from a young age that ultra running was a thing. But yeah, I mean, I feel very fortunate that when the tornado hit my family's home back in 1999, that that book was under my bed in a bin. And it was one of the few things that survived. And it, like if you, I don't have the book here with me, but I've traveled all over the world with that's it. That's a big book. And that's probably what stopped <laughs> your house from blowing away. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a pretty heavy paperweight pretty much. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've traveled, the, I've, I've been through life with that book. I mean, it survived a tornado and, 
And I mean, it's it's incredible because it's highlighted and paper clipped and underlined. And uh, I mean, I ended up studying exercise and sports science in uh, my undergrad and then later in grad school. So I was able to learn how to appreciate all the science that's in that book. Uh, but it was fun for me, you know, going through my running career, getting into the marathon, eventually into ultra running, it was fun to go back and read those stories again, because I could actually appreciate, you know, uh, what, what what they're doing, because I'm actually living it. So And Trasten might be mentioned in that book. Well, funny enough, the edition that I have is the third edition, and it came out in like 1991. So it I never, have the same one. And it didn't talk about Anne Tracen. The Anne Tracen, uh, the Anne Tracen didn't come about until the fourth edition. Yeah, I have that one as well. And I have the fourth edition as well. So I didn't realize, I didn't know who Anne Tracen was. Like my heroes reading in that book was basically Bruce Fordyce and Arthur Newton and uh, like the really old school comrades runners. Anne Tracen wasn't part of my memory bank, you know, growing up as a runner. I didn't know who she was and, until uh, I started getting into ultra running and people started talking about her. So, yeah, it was kind of funny to, you know, I had the seed planted about comrades, but I didn't know who Anne Tracen was. So now When you say you had the seed planted, does that mean that you thought <laughs> that one day you might actually run it? Yeah, I mean, I thought if I was going to run an ultra someday, I, I mean, I had no idea having this book that, like, I thought, well, I'll run an ultra someday, but I had no idea I would actually be good at ultra running. <laughs> and you ran the Comrades in 2017. How did that go? <laughs> I ended up winning it. <laughs> oh, as you do. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I felt that, to win, to win comrades is... That's a big deal. It's a very big deal. And I, I feel that for me to have won it, I had such a great respect and appreciation for that race. And the people of South Africa would have a great respect and admiration for whoever wins it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I felt like I went into that race and I feel like it's one of those races that, um, I mean, the entire country gets behind it. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things that you have to really respect it because it is really hard and it's very competitive. And um, I think one of the slogans one year was, it will humble you. And so I was actually humbled my very first time running it back in 2014 because I, I had a stomach virus and I tried to run it and I ended up passing out at like 83 kilometers of the 89 kilometer race. So I had been humbled by comrades and yeah, and I, I knew I knew a lot of the history behind it. So I felt like when I went back in 2017, I had such a great appreciation and it had humbled me that uh, I knew I had this, I felt like I knew what it was going to take to to win it. So. And was that an up year or a down year? I won the up year, uh, which for me, coming from Pancake Flat, Oklahoma, is I, I feel, I'm pretty proud of that because I, I I'm not I'm not from the mountains. I'm not from a place where there's a lot of climbing, uh, but I found a way. Like we would actually drive 90 minutes to the nearest uh, climb that I had uh, to to train for that race. So you know where there's a will, there's a way. If the mountain won't come to Camille, Camille goes to the mountain. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I think I read that you're doing it again this year. Yeah. Yeah. And is I am. this year an up year or down year? Uh, this year's a down year. So. 
Out of curiosity, how will your training differ for this year with the downs? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously you've got to condition your quads for the downhills. Um, but I would say, I mean, there's it's not really that different. I mean, I think for me, uh, I approach it of, of trying to get to uh, do a hill session about twice a month. So I do a really hard hill session. And would you reverse the hill by doing the work on downhill rather than uphill? Uh, I mean, I, I actually treat it, I treat the uphill and the downhill like I'm doing like a tempo run so I push both the up and the down and I think a lot of people uh, a lot of people think it's all about pushing the up but especially for comrades being the downhill course you've really got to push the down like you've got to really condition your quads yeah, all, all that shock is absorbed and the damage get will make itself known before the end of the race yeah exactly and then when you need them for climbing they're not there yeah yeah like you've got to get your legs used to that um, and it gets easier I mean if you condition your quads I mean, it gets easier for that eccentric loading. So, and how are your legs? Do you suffer much from injury? Yeah, you know the the interesting thing for me is I feel like I'm I'm born to, I'm born for running. Like I can run a whole lot. Uh, I don't really get overuse type of injuries. Uh, but since I've gotten into trail, I'm I'm the type of person you got to wrap me in bubble wrap. Like I I have a tendency to slip off curbs and uh, fall and slide into trees and just the the most random things happen to me. Uh, so so yeah, I've just got to be really careful and uh, you know have a pretty smooth build up here to June. So would that be one of the reasons that you did your master's thesis on enhancing <laughs> bone recovery? That sounds very interesting. But yeah yeah I so when I when I was younger. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really like it, it literally be, I became my own science project. I was going to think in that that you maybe <laughs> studied that for yourself rather than to actually go off and use it as a career. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I went to grad school, it was before my running career had taken off. And uh, it's almost ironic now that, you know, what I studied in grad school, I've been able to apply with myself as a runner. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say that my forte uh, in terms of my science knowledge uh, is all about bone recovery. And yeah, I mean, I've taken I've taken what I've learned from that and I've been able to be very resilient as a as a marathoner and ultra runner so and do you think that your sport has made you more aware of the importance of your bone and muscle condition oh absolutely I mean I I knew I knew from being in grad school that uh, I knew how to optimize mechanical stress in such a way that it would be healthy and healthy for my body and make me the strongest uh, and physically, physically the strongest uh, athlete that I could be. So it was like I said, it was almost like I was my own science experiment. Uh, was it the um, was it Ron Dawes, the self made the self made Olympian? Uh, so Ron Dawes was a very cerebral marathoner, American marathoner, and he wrote this book, The Self Made Olympian, and he was the type of guy that would whittle down his shoes. He wrote this book and he talked about all these things that he did to make him an Olympian and uh, I mean I'm kind of the same way I've, I've taken all this knowledge that I learned uh, from from grad school and I've applied it with myself to develop my own uh, training philosophy and uh, I mean I, I had no idea I was going to become the ultra runner that, that I am but obviously whatever I'm doing uh, works quite well so obviously it does yeah <laughs> let's talk a little bit about recovery then between training sessions and races how do you manage that 
Yeah, so we're talking about my my thesis. Um, I actually learned that um, it's better to split the the stress into multiple bouts in a day, and uh, you want to have about four to eight hours of recovery between runs. So, uh, like this morning, I went for a run for ninety minutes, and uh, I'll go for a run after I get done talking with you, uh, probably for another hour. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've I've been running twice a day every day for. 13, 15 years, and uh, that's the most optimal way to load your body. So it's better to split the stress into multiple bouts rather than single long sessions. Um, and I think the unique thing about me is I my long runs are not very long. I'm only going for, uh, was it 18 to 22 miles? Uh, I think that my, I tr- I've tried to do the math on that recently. Uh, was it 29 to 35 kilometers? Uh, so my long runs are not very far, but I'll come back in the evening time for a second shakeout run of about 35 to 50 minutes. And uh, that actually helps me to recover faster from my long runs. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, uh, I mean, a lot of what we've learned has almost been by accident sometimes. I mean, we've kind of, we've kind of figured things out that, that, oh, you know, that that really helped, uh, that really helped to enhance my fitness. And so uh, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm born for like long, like I'm probably like 99% slow twitch. So I thrive on a lot of long, slow distance, but I still have to touch my speed uh, and do like short interval type stuff just to, just to tap into that, that like 1% fast twitch that I have. Um, so yeah, we've just kind of figured out my own unique physiology and how to uh, approach my training to optimize performance. So now you've proven that works and what you mentioned about bone health and bone recovery, how does that fare out with muscle recovery? Because if you were after doing a training session and your body is up in a catabolic state after a long training run, and catabolic being the destruction and breakdown of living organism, and we're talking about muscle in this case, if you haven't got enough recovery time between sessions, you don't get a chance for the muscles to go anabolic and start rebuilding. Is that the case? Yeah, as I said, that research shows that it's more anabolic to split the stress into multiple bouts. Okay, rather... so you're not going to break in point. Yeah, so it's better. So say say you were going to have a two hours of running for the day. It would be better to split it into one hour in the morning and one hour in the evening rather than a single two-hour run. Uh, and so, I mean, there's, there's re- uh, being a bone research person that this is, I, I learned all this from being a bone person that, that, Hey, you know, maybe I could apply this to myself with training. And so that was kind of my philosophy getting into, uh, training for the marathon was to run twice a day and to run multiple bouts a day. Um, but yeah, in terms of muscle, uh, obviously your nutrition is really important. And so, uh, I was very fortunate in grad school that I took a lot of nutrition and bio chemistry courses and I was surrounded by a lot of really uh, really good sports nutrition people who were able to hammer it into me that you know, running multiple times a day, you got to eat multiple times a day. I'm, I'm a big fan of the second breakfast. <laughs> of the what breakfast? <laughs> the second breakfast. Sounds delicious. <laughs> what is it? The, I think that's like a Lord of the Rings thing or something like that. Uh, or no, is it the Hobbits? Uh, 
but but yeah, I'm, I'm somebody that I eat multiple times a day. I eat a lot of food. Obviously, I'm burning a lot of calories, and it's really important that I make sure I'm getting enough calories to match that energy expenditure. Um, but yeah, I mean, being a woman, it's really important as well um, to, to make sure that I'm getting my monthly cycle. Um, and I mean, I learned that when I was in high school that, uh, that I had to be an energy balance. I've got to make sure that with all the running I'm doing, that I'm getting enough calories uh, to, to maintain, you know, my hormonal balance as a female athlete. And so I, I'm very fortunate that I'm a very healthy person. I don't have any weird like health quirks other than, you know, this crazy ultra running talent. Beer. <laughs> Beer. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of really cool things I learned in grad school and um, that are nutritionally pretty healthy for you. And one of them is beer. Uh, so beer in moderation um, is actually very good for bone health. Um, and I, so I actually, we, we eventually became home brewers and we started brewing our own beer. And uh, I mean, you get, there's a lot of really good micronutrients in beer and um, that are good for your bones and muscles. So it sounds like what you've been doing has been evidence-based from the beginning. And maybe that has helped with your longevity and it's given you a future. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, I like I'm approaching 100,000 lifetime miles right now. Uh, I guess in terms of kilometers, that's 160 kilometers, uh, 100, 160,000 kilometers, yes. lifetime kilometers. Uh, and I mean, the approach that I have is a very healthy approach to training. Uh, I mean, my knees are good and my hips are good. I, I feel really, really good right now. And um. I mean, I'm hoping to be a lifetime runner and, uh, you know, to continue with a, a healthy approach to training. Well, it's been proven that if you use your body in the right way, that it improves with use, unlike a machine that can break down. It's not the running that will damage your body. It's running wrongly. Running wrongly. That's right. I mean, that's the cool thing about the human body is it's a, it's a dynamic tissue. Uh, so it's always in a state of remodeling itself and rebuilding. And uh, I mean, that that's kind of what I gained from studying bone is that the body is capable of remodeling and rebuilding and um, and how to unlock that potential, uh, you know, hormonally uh, and anabolically. Um, you know, to upregulate the hormones that help your body to stay strong. So that's what I studied in grad school. And I've been able to take that knowledge of how to optimize recovery and uh, keep the body in an anabolic state. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hope, you know, as I continue running through my life that, you know, that, that, you know, maybe I'll have to change things, you know, to adapt with age. But uh, for right now, I mean, I, I'm just as strong as I've ever been. I mean, I'm, I'm much stronger than I was 10 years ago in my 20s. And um, so all that training that I've done has, has made me uh, physically, you know, I'm fast and I'm strong and I just feel good. So yeah, you're a good advertising for the sport. <laughs> You mentioned Speedworks. Now might be a good time to mention some of your other races. Back in 2017, you set a 100-mile world record with a time of 12 hours 42 minutes. You also have the second fastest 100-mile time on record, which was 13 hours 24 minutes. Then the following month, you set the 12-hour world record, and that was a distance of 149.13 kilometers. You also have the 50-mile world record, which is set back in 2015, still stands. That's five hours, 38 minutes. Is this what you call speed work? 
I, I, we, we've been joking because uh, I want to do the Comrades Marathon uh, two weeks before Western States this year. So uh, Comrades is now my speed work for Western States. So uh, yeah, I, I've got I've I've gotten to where I can wrap my head around uh, 50 miles, almost being a short distance. Uh, it's it's kind of funny to think about that because I can remember at one time, uh, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, you know, 100k, that's so like that's so far. But now that you know, I've gone 24 hours. I mean, it kind of warps your your brain and your perspective on, uh, you know, what's what what is far. <laughs> you know, what what is a far distance? And I I don't feel that there really is any limit on uh, how far. I mean, you see people doing 3,100 miles, um, and so yeah, I mean, you look at 50 miles and it's like, oh, that's a drop in the bucket, you know, compared to compared to what we're doing now, you know, going much, much further. So, now anyone listening to the podcast <laughs> knows that you're smiling and you're laughing. And in any podcast, you can sense that if you see you running around the track or during a race, you're smiling, you're laughing, you're always happy. I recently spoke to a Dr. Noel Brick. He's a lecturer in exercise psychology with the University of Ulster. During that interview, we were talking about the impact of attentional focus during endurance events. And one of his studies was on facial expressions and smiling to help increase performance by down-regulating the feeling of fatigue and pain. I told him that I was going to be talking to yourself. And he <laughs> said that he noted that you were obviously a big smiler. And he mentioned you as being one of the influences for that research, along with Elliot Kipchoge and Chrissy Wellington. He thought that maybe it was just your personality and was curious to know... Is it because you have a passion for what you do or how did a smiling start? Yeah, I mean, I came into the world. I was born on Christmas Day and uh, my great grandmother nicknamed me Smiley uh, from from the day that I was born. Um, in fact, it was actually my, my car tag uh, back in high school was Smiley. Um, so yeah, I'm a naturally happy person and uh, I feel like I feel like my joy for running really comes out more the further I run. Um, I, it was probably when I went for the 100 mile world record that that people started realizing how much I was smiling. And it was not something that was forced. It was something that was just natural to me. Um, that I just remember that day when I set that record, it was such a beautiful morning that uh, I just remember seeing the light coming through the trees and thinking, oh, it's so beautiful. I feel like I'm out for a long run on a Sunday, you know? And um, so, yeah, it was just something that just came out. Uh, I just realized that it seems like the further I go, the more I smile. And obviously, you know, I'm, I'm pushing through a lot of fatigue and pain. And uh, maybe my smile turns into more of a grit, a, <laughs> a grimace. Uh, so, so, yeah, I would say that, you know, I'm probably when I run 24 hours, that maybe I'm smiling for about 23 and a half hours. <laughs> and, and then there's another half hour in there where I'm probably grimacing. So. How do you stay motivated? What gets you to run twice a day every day? Gosh, I I joke that it's for for me running is like breathing oxygen. I feel like it's like part of my daily routine that I know I have to do that. I'm a bit like Forrest Gump that I do things and I don't really think about it. 
And uh, I, I laughed because even when I even when I ran the, the world championship, uh, that, you know, all these things are happening to me in the race and everybody's freaking out around me that, oh, my gosh, you know, she's having gut issues or whatever. Uh, but in, in my I'm like Forrest Gump when I run. I just have a one track mind of I'm out there to, to reach to, to push my human limits and I will push through anything, you know, Forrest Gump running through a battlefield, um, you know, dodging bullets. I mean, that's me. That's kind of the mindset that I have. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just I just try to tell myself to keep going and that I know that I'm going to have challenges. And um, yeah, I mean, on a daily basis, we're talking about training twice a day. I mean, I I have I just like to run. I'm like the, the mouse that gets on the wheel every day and uh, just just enjoys it. So. And you get cranky if you can't run, like you do a lot of traveling. <laughs> like this week in particular, you've been over in the UK at the running show and now you're over in Ireland. Yeah, I, I actually do. I've actually had a bit of an eye issue here that this week that's like knocked me out because I visually couldn't see. <laughs> so it's kind of this weird moment that, I mean, I rarely ever get sick um, when I'm traveling. I mean, there's times that we've been traveling and we might get into South Africa at like seven o'clock in the evening and I don't get to my hotel till like, you know, eight or nine and I go out for a run and people, <laughs> you know, being in South Africa, there might there might be crime or something and I'm out there and people are like who is this crazy girl out running you know 10 o'clock at night so oh that's Camille <laughs> that that's me um I mean I like I could be I could be I was in uh where was I in Tahoe I know I was in uh, Squaw Valley last fall and uh there's a blizzard and I think we had like eaten a bunch of Indian food and there's a blizzard out and it was like 10 o'clock at night and I put on my running shoes and I went for a run and everybody else is getting winding down for bed and I'm going out for a run in a blizzard after eating Indian food. Um, so, I mean, that's just kind of the, that's the mindset that I have that I will do whatever it takes to, to get in my second run for the day. So Now that you mentioned eating Indian food. <laughs> If you were traveling somewhere, is there anything you would avoid food-wise? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Um, we're really careful not to eat salads, anything that's not cooked, um, especially in like any foreign countries. You don't know, you know, if they've watched, watched it. So we try to always eat uh, cooked food. Um, we're really careful with water, uh, just trying to drink uh, bottled water when we travel. As far as foods, I don't like. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I guess we could talk about my diet if you want. But, uh, the only food I don't like is onions. <laughs> What's wrong with onions? I do not like onions. I've never liked onions. Uh, I Even as a kid, uh, that was like the one food that I just hated. <laughs> and have you ever had any problems before a race that you've traveled to? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, when I ran my first Comrades, I had a stomach virus the day before. And I thought I was just really badly jet lagged um, because I was I was basically bedridden the day before Comrades. I had traveled to the race like maybe it was it seemed like it was pretty close. Like maybe I had arrived like on a Thursday and the race was on a Sunday. And uh, so I thought it was really badly jet lagged, but uh, I had a stomach virus. And um, so when I went into the race, it was just awful. And I ended up passing out and I ended up in the emergency room and uh, I had a fever. I was racing with a fever and I 
never get sick. So I thought I couldn't even even imagine, uh, you know, the one time, the one time that I get sick is the day before comrades. And, um, I mean, I haven't even, I never get sick. So, um, see, I'm really careful when I travel that, you know, try not to eat any salads or eat any weird foods, you know, make sure everything I have is cooked and bottled water and that sort of thing. Yeah. But the same myself and something else I do, which is my own little tip. If I'm traveling somewhere far, I always bring an extra toothbrush. So if I've been sick and when I get myself better, I take the new toothbrush because the older toothbrush <sighs> will be reintroducing the bacteria back uh, into me. Good point. Yeah, good point. And I, would your travel on, what do you put into that? Uh, yeah, I make always, sure all your running gear. Uh, is yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm always, I'm always good about that. Yeah, carrying on all my my race gear, my Team USA stuff. Yeah, that's that's really important. Now you mentioned being very sick at the time of the comrades. How do you deal with setbacks? That's a great question. Uh, in fact, I just talked at the the national running show here last weekend, and uh, I mean, I've I've had a lot of DNFs. I've had injuries. Uh, I mean, it's. I just really take all those setbacks that I have and just use it as fuel for the fire that just knowing, you know, when you get those tough moments at, you know, the 24 hour world championship. And I think about all those things that I had to overcome to, to be there. Uh, and so I, I really, I, I feel like I have a great appreciation when I am able to be healthy and to toe the line and that I want to make the most of those opportunities. And so, uh, I just, I just use this fuel for the fire that, you know, all those setbacks and uh, those those low moments in my life and my running career are just propelling me to even greater heights. It's great to be able to do that because I found that when somebody's DNFs in the race, that a lot of times it can become practice to DNF again, and they almost use it as an excuse, and that just leads to a downward spiral, and the career is more or less over then. Yeah, I feel like uh, for for me, I mean, I've had some DNFs, and uh, I the only time I've ever DNF'd in a race is because of a serious injury. And so I feel like as an athlete that I've become a lot wiser in, in respecting my body. And I feel like that there, you know, not all DNFs are created equal. I obviously there's a lot of things that you can push through to achieve amazing things. I mean, I pushed through just about everything I could at the World Championship, but um, but at the same time, I mean. If I if I I tore my hamstring seventy percent of the tendon last year, and um and I I just know my body well enough to know when to when to when to pull the reins back and live to fight an- for another day, um because I I'm the type of person that will push myself to the point of breaking my leg or tearing a tendon and needing surgery, um and so I've got to be wise with with my with my livelihood and my career because I don't want to have some sort of career ending type of injury. So. Well, I'd reframe that rather than calling that a DNF I call that a could not continue could not continue because you have a, you, you, you have a reason I think if you analyse the race afterwards you will then know if you've been truthful with yourself and if you had a reason to not to continue, it's easier to live with that and come back again. Oh, yeah. And you're obviously very truthful with yourself. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that people don't realize that I'm really pushing my body to the extreme. And um, and, and yeah, and unfortunately, you know, injuries can happen during races. Um, it's, it's really, it's, it's happened to me a lot more on trials because there's a lot more risk involved. Um, and so I've, I've had to learn how to be more careful uh, and to be more cognizant you know not to overstep uh, 
the red line for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, anything <laughs> that there's a lot of risk involved with ultra running what we're doing. I mean, we're covering more distance and uh, there are a lot of things that you can push through. And I mean, part of why I'm successful is that I have the ultra runner mindset that I'm willing to, to jump over the hurdles, you know, many, many hurdles to keep going. But at the same time, I'm also uh, being an older runner, I'm, I'm a lot wiser and with my health. Uh, because I mean, there were things when I was a younger athlete that I pushed through that I really greatly regretted. And um, because they really knocked me out for a long period. And so so now, you know, I'm, I can be a lot wiser with my health and my myself. So you're a very qualified running coach, but you also use a coach. Do you think for a high performance athlete, using a coach to help with the decision making process helps you to focus on what you just need to do? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, for, for what I'm doing, uh, there's so much like happening in terms of like communication. And uh, my, my husband, Connor, really helps me to manage and manage the parts of my career so that I just focus on myself and my, my running and taking care of myself. Um, so, so he manages a lot of things that, you know, the business side of being an athlete and uh, managing my race schedules and uh, the events that I attend and travel and that that sort of thing and so that really takes the stress and the pressure off me that I don't have to deal with that um so so yeah I mean he's he's got to be a huge credit to uh to helping me manage my running career yeah and I've seen one of the programs that Connor has made out and the difference between looking at that program and looking at something that you might pick up in a magazine or a book is it's personalized you see something in a book, it doesn't suit everybody. You need something that fits around the person so they can actually have the program to fit around their life rather than them trying to slot into what Day 7 says in the magazine. Yeah, I mean, with our coaching plans that we've developed, I mean, we, we have a structure that we've developed uh, just, you know, through through years of trial and error. And we're able to take that and apply it to anybody of any ability, uh, you know, any mileage level, any ability. And so uh, I think people have been really surprised by our approach just because we we have a sense of uh, not overtraining. Um, that, that people think that what I'm doing, that I must be like training like a mad animal. Uh, but, but the truth is, uh, that we, we know, we know how to, uh, was it that it's better to be 10% undertrained than 5% overtrained. And so people have been really surprised by our approach that we have such a way of, uh, developing the training so that people, feel better that they're able to recover better and a a lot of it like we talked about comes down to how it's structured i suppose they're surprised because it looks manageable and achievable yeah yeah it does i mean it's amazing because we we've had so many people be like you know where's the back-to-back long runs or you know where's my 40 mile training runs and i i'm like no i don't do that (laughs) so i almost feel like a lot of ultra runners have been overtrained maybe and uh, we're changing the, the philosophy on how to train and how to structure your training. And uh, I do a lot of speed work as well. And uh, people that are that have been trained by other uh, coaches, they come to me and, uh, you know, we're adding in these elements of speed and they're really shocked by how good they feel. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's. Uh, a lot of people, you know, are going for 100 miles or beyond and they're getting to 80 miles and they're feeling great. And I'm like, see, I told you, you know, like whatever we're doing, uh, we've got a pretty, pretty good system. So 
And a lot of the races you do require the support of a crew. How important do you think having the right crew is? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's so essential. When I entered into ultra running back in 2015, uh, Connor wasn't helping me at that point. And um, his first time to crew me was in 2016. And uh, the first time he saw me run an ultra, he was just really taken aback because uh, I was catching the men during the race. And uh, he got excited. Like he was like, during the race, he was like, Oh, my gosh, and he realized like how important he was to help me, you know, potentially beat the men outright. And, uh, and he's he's come to realize like, even from that first race that he crewed me, uh, he gave me a beer during the race. (laughs) And uh, it was at a moment where I was feeling like I was feeling nauseated, I wasn't feeling great at the time. And he was he was the one that was able to think outside the box and to think of something, you know, when everything else wasn't working. Uh, so he, and, and my brain at that point was really fuzzy during the race. And so he was kind of the brains that took over and thought outside the box. And uh, that got me out of the chair and I was able to go on and break the course record. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, he, 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 he's the type, he's the one, the extra brain uh, that knows me and knows exactly how to push my buttons to, to keep me going. So... And yeah, beer is a very good drink to have during a race <laughs> like that because it has carbohydrates and there are seven calories per <laughs> gram of alcohol. So it is a source of energy. The difference between the energy from alcohol and the energy that you would get from carbohydrate, fat or to a lesser extent protein is that it can't be stored. So you must use it. So that will be the preferred source of energy if you're taking alcohol. Yeah, so, I mean, so once you don't take too much and you start wobbling. <laughs> uh, so I mean, alcohol is metabolized through a different pathway. So uh, I think that's something that's kind of unique that, uh, you know, if you're taking in all this sugar during a race and then you take alcohol, it's processed through a different pathway. So your body can use that as energy. So you're getting more fuel. It's, it's almost like having a turbo. Yeah. We better be careful now because we'll have everybody <laughs> looking for beer during a race. I can vouch that you can over drink beer. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but just a little bit. Um, for me, the first time I had a beer in a race was uh, so so. Alcohol is a vasodilator, and uh, for me, it felt like it helped uh, my blood circulation to the point where I gained mental clarity. So I, I know it sounds really goofy to because you're thinking, oh, you know, it, it's a suppressant, like it would knock you out. But I actually mentally felt like I gained focus. So does that mean it helps with the return of deoxygenated blood quicker to the heart? Yeah, I I think it helps to it helps your circulation. Okay, so that I makes mean, sense. If all the blood in say say you're taking in a lot of sugar and all the blood is going to your gut, well, so it can help to recirculate the blood, you know, to to your limbs and to your brain, uh, so that you can gain, uh, you know, because <laughs> for me, I I feel like I I take in so much sugar in a race that it's like all that blood's going to your gut and yeah, I mean you can get GI issues and I feel like alcohol uh, not only is a vasodilator but it kind of helps to settle your gut. So now, I've never actually tried in beer with alcohol during a race. It's mainly a non-alcoholic beer, so I must actually try it now with the next <laughs> one. Now, speaking of sugar, would you take much sugar during a race? Yeah, <laughs> do I take a lot of sugar? Uh, I take a lot of sugar for sure. Would it be gels or sports drinks? I take both. Um, so, I mean, as far as like my plan, I mean, the first time I ran 24 hours, uh, I took 44 gels during the race. 
So it was basically a gel every half hour. And uh, there were a couple points in, in the race where I didn't feel like I wanted a gel. So I would have something else like a taco or uh, a potato or uh maybe like Mountain Dew or something like that. So. so that means you must be working at a high enough intensity to actually burn that fuel. So you must be really going for it from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm really, I'm really pushing it. Um, but yeah, I mean, to take in a lot of sugar like that, you have to have a lot of water to dilute it in your gut because you don't want the concentration to get too high in your gut. And so I think that that's a mistake that a lot of people make is... Uh, like myself. <laughs> taking in too much sugar. And so for me, when I when I run ultras, I, I run with two bottles. I have one with water and another with sports drink. And so uh, every half hour, I'm taking a gel with water and making sure I'm getting enough water to dilute the gel. And then in between that, I'm sipping a sports drink. So I'm making sure I'm getting enough electrolytes. Uh, so you're making sure you're never depleted. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm getting a constant stream every 10, 15 minutes. I'm making sure I'm getting some sugar in my system. As fatigue sets in in the later parts of the race, are you still mentally aware that you need to do that? Or is your support crew telling you you have to drink or are you drinking? Yeah, so uh, my Coro's watch, I'm able to set an alarm on my watch uh, to beep every 30 minutes to remind myself to take my gel. So uh, that's what really helps to keep me on track when my brain starts to get mentally fuzzy overnight. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's that's been a huge help for me is just being able to set that alarm. And um, would you vary the flavors to prevent flavor fatigue? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I for for the most part, uh, I mean, I'm sponsored by Unived, and Unived has a lot of different flavors. Uh, I've usually preferred a vanilla, uh, sea salt type flavor, uh, and I've used vanilla has been like my go-to for pretty much my entire running career, going back to when I was a marathoner. I, I prefer like a pretty bland type of taste. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'll mix it up with some orange gels and. Um, yeah, I think they've got like chocolate and uh, I'm trying to remember all the different flavors. They've got a good gazillion different flavors. But um, but yeah, I mean, if I get tired, if I get tired of gels, then I try to mix it up, like I said, with something kind of bland, like potatoes. Um, at the World Championship, uh, when when I things were not going well for me, I actually switched to mashed potatoes in a cup. Uh, they were making up instant mashed potatoes. Um, and then I was having uh, fruit smoothies. So every half hour, I was either, either having the potatoes or a fruit smoothie. And then they were mixing up um, a brewed sweet tea. So I had my hydration for about 10 hours of the race. Uh, I had switched to brewed sweet tea. So Let's talk a little bit now about your marathon running, what led you on to the uh, ultra running. Back in 2012, you qualified for the Olympic marathon trials and you ran a marathon personal best of two hours, 37 minutes and 14 seconds in the Houston Marathon. What made you turn your back on possible Olympic glory to step into a lesser known sport of ultra running? Yeah, so uh, what happened was I had made a U.S. team in the marathon. So I had run for the U.S. team at the Pan American Games back in 2011. And it was two weeks before the New York City Marathon. And so I had actually committed to New York City before I found out I had made the U.S. team. So I decided to do both. And so uh, when I committed to the Pan American team, New York City was really nervous about inviting me, uh, knowing that I was wanting to do two marathons. 
And so I ended up finishing ninth at the Pan American Games, and they let me come back two weeks later and do the New York City Marathon. Well, I ended up finishing as third American at New York City. And the elite coordinator at New York City started talking to me. He said, "He said, hey, have you have you thought about doing ultra running?" He's he's like, "What you what you just did was like pretty amazing." <laughs> but it was a gamble. Yeah, it was a gamble. But um, I had that that year. I had been running a lot of marathons. I had run something like seven. I had qualified for the Olympic marathon trials seven times. So I had already been racing a lot of marathons, and so. I had convinced them that I could do New I could do the Pan American Games Marathon and come back and do really well at New York City. And sure enough, I did. I ended up coming back and uh, ran just over 240 in New York City and was third American. Um, and so then they were like, "Hey, have you thought about ultra running?" And I was like, "I was like, yeah, I want to, you know, to eventually do it." Um, but but yeah, I I feel like the seed was kind of planted then that that hey maybe I should start thinking about you know, trying ultra running. So I ended up making my debut at Two Oceans in 2013. And then in 2015, you did the USA Track and Field 100 kilometer Championships. That's a big, big jump now from going from a marathon. And it's not so much just a jump, but it's a big risk. What made you actually commit to that? Yeah, so I, having made a US team in the marathon, I felt like I had gone as far as I could uh, I had made the Olympic marathon trials three times. I had made a U.S. team in the marathon. So it was kind of like I was at the point where I was thinking about retiring from running. And it was kind of like, well, you know, let's try let's try this whole ultra thing again in 2015 and uh, really commit myself to uh, to seeing what's possible, to seeing if I could really do well at it. And um, so when I ran my first 100K in 2015, uh, it was scary. <laughs> I remember towing the line at my first 100K and um, it was nerve wracking. Like I, I feel like a lot of marathoners don't want to make that leap because it's scary to go go that far and to not know what's going to happen or how to feel. So um, it was really scary. I remember towing the line. In fact, I towed the line and I realized I hadn't put on sunscreen. <laughs> and uh, and so I was like, I was panicking a but little bit. But you had bit. your shorts on. I had my shorts on. I had my clothes on. Uh, but I was panicking a bit because I hadn't put on sunscreen and I was getting ready to run for, you know, seven plus hours in the sun. Um, and so I was kind of laughing to myself during the race thinking oh my gosh this is gonna hurt because I'm gonna get a really bad sun sunburn um, but during the race it was this epiphany that I started catching the men after about uh, 50k for, uh, was it 50 60k I started catching men and uh, I had run I had split halfway in that race under the American record so I had hit like uh, was it 329 through 50k and uh, I remember thinking oh my gosh did I go out too fast like I'm under American record pace and then I started catching the men and uh, I did everything wrong in terms of nutrition because I had no idea what I was doing but I kept going. And um, I ended up breaking one of Ann Trayson's, her national championship record in that race. And I say that that race was the turning point for me because for me, that race felt like Billy Elliot doing ballet for the first time. Like it felt like I was born for that. And um, 
and I think that that was really what just sealed the deal for me that I think I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to go on. And I mean, I've never felt like so like compelled by anything as, you know, running that race and feeling like this is what I'm supposed to do. So I was actually talking about Billy Elliot yesterday. We were just talking about the soundtrack. So that's very coincidental. I must watch it. Though you mentioned that when you were starting a race with your sunscreen, you were expecting to be out for seven hours something. What did you think that something was going to be? Did you think you were going to get the time you did? You finished in seven hours, 26 and 24 seconds. Yeah. Which is fairly moving. I actually had no idea. I hadn't, I hadn't looked, studied. T- I knew what the American record was. So I had taken, I had basically taken the American record and was like, oh, you know, that would be like, you know, 80% of my max heart rate effort. So I kind of went into the mindset, not knowing what my pace was going to be, what time I would run. Um, I kind of thought it would be somewhere around seven hours. Um, but I didn't really, I didn't know who Ann Trayson was. I just knew that she held the American record. And, um, so yeah, I just, I felt like I kind of went into that race with blinders, having no idea what my pace was going to be, what I was, uh, how to feel, just how to do anything. And, uh, I came away from it pretty shocked because I guess I had run the fastest time in the world in like eight years or something like that. And, uh, and I mean, it was it was funny because I mean, during the race, like it was just such a weird experience. I mean, running, going, going a distance that I've never gone before and not knowing what was going to happen. And I found myself like catching them in and it just went extremely well. And uh, that was just a real like turning point for me. So. And then you went on to run in the 100 kilometer world championships in Winscotton back yeah, in 2015. It, I think it was, I might have been at that race. Yeah, you might have. <laughs> I was going to say it was fairly flat, but everywhere in, yeah. in the Netherlands is flat. Yeah. Did you compete there? Yeah. Was Mike Wardian in the, on the team that uh, year? No, he okay, wasn't. Okay, well, maybe it was a year or two before that then. Oh, okay. I think I might be making it up. But no, it was definitely Winscotton because it was a 10-kilometer loop. Yeah, it was a 10K loop. So it might have been like a couple of years it before. Might have been, yeah, it might have been before that. So yeah. I, just, I just missed you there. And how did that go? <laughs> Yeah, it went pretty well. <laughs> yes, it did. I think you came away from that as the world champion. I did. I'm trying I'm trying to wrap my head around. Um I think that was like my third ultra. Uh yeah, cuz I did the did two oceans and then I did the 100k and then I did the world championship. So yeah, I mean to have become a world champion in my third ultra and uh I just missed the American record in that. So that race. was your first world champion title. Yeah, so it was my first world title uh, was there. And I, I remember towing the line at that race and just feeling like, let the magic come out. I felt like this is my moment to like show the world what's possible. And it was it was such a magical day. And I actually had a lot of GI issues in that race uh, because I that was still when I was a new ultra runner and I didn't know how to fuel. And I think I I think uh, we're talking about trying to make sure you get enough water with your gels. I didn't get enough water with my gels, so I ended up with like a lot of gel in my gut, and uh, it started making me sick. And I ended up uh, puking for a good chunk of the race, and I ended up missing the record, the American record, by eight minutes. But um, I still ran seven oh eight. Uh, which is a very good time and um, yeah I mean I I still would love to break seven hours I think I've got it in me to break seven hours and just you know with everything that I've learned since then Um, so yeah I would like to have another opportunity at that 
And then a few months later, you were in Qatar running in the 50-kilometer World Championships. I think that might have been the first OAU 50-kilometer World Championships. Yeah, it was. Um, so when I ran my first 100K uh, that, that previous spring, I actually qualified for the U.S. 50K team. So I was not planning to do that. Oh, is that because they have a split <laughs> in Wins Cotton at the 100K? Uh, because they had a 50K split yeah. at the 100K and that I ran the previous spring. So I unintentionally qualified for both the 50K team and for the 100K team. And uh, so I was kind of over the moon because it was like two world championships. You know, that would be pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I, I knew, I felt like I had the best shot at winning the 100K and that the 50K was a little bit too short for me and I didn't know who would be there uh, there were a couple of Olympians there there were um, a lot of Olympians at that race yeah at the 50k so when I when I ran that race um, it, I didn't I wasn't sure if it was a done deal that I would win but it was hot Very, yeah I think that race was <laughs> held at midnight they it, they held it I think it was when I ran that they held it at 6 p.m. in the evening um, I think when they ran the 100K, they had the 100K the year before. They had it at midnight. Um, but yeah, we ran the race in the evening time and it was very, very hot. And that ended up playing to my favor because I had been heat training uh, for the race and uh, training in the evening time. And so I was, I wasn't, it wasn't a done deal that I was going to win that, but I just took off and uh, a lot of people were running very conservative pace because of the heat. But I just, I took the bull by the horns and I just put the hammer down and uh, yeah, I just ran like a mad woman. So you have been world champion at 50K, 100K in 24 hours. They are the three ultra-running championship races. Yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible that uh, I'm the first and only athlete that has won every ultra-road world championship. So uh, that's a pretty cool thing. You'll have to get order citizenship now and get the European <laughs> championships. <laughs> there you go. I could, I could get my Irish citizenship. So. Yeah, I don't think we have a vacancy on the team just yet, but we'll keep you in mind. <laughs> you can send in your expression of interest. <laughs> I'm sure you guys would welcome me. <laughs> well, we'll, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> what motivates you? Where do you get your drive from? Yeah, where do I get my drive from? I would, I would say my dad and my grandpa. Uh, my my parents had four kids, and I was the one that was extremely motivated and hardworking and um, athletic. Uh, my my brother was pretty athletic, but uh, my dad likes to joke that um, when when my brother and I started running, he would take us to run around a field, and my brother would be cutting the corners, and I would never cut the corners. I always went around all the corners, and that and, made the difference. And so that made so my dad said that he knew that I was going to be the one that would go on to be the athlete because I never cut the corners. Like I didn't cheat. And then you got my brother would be cutting the corners or cutting across the field or whatever. And <laughs> integrity, <laughs> integrity. I've got integrity for sure. So, uh, but but yeah, I mean, from a young age, I I hearing stories from my dad and my grandpa who played college basketball at Oklahoma State um I mean I heard stories from my dad about uh playing without water for six hours and so uh I mean not that my dad forced me to play basketball without water but I had it in my mind from a young age that 
I have to push myself to the extreme. And so when I got a basketball goal when I was seven and I would be playing out in the middle of July in the hot sun, um, I would be practicing to the point of blacking out. So I would, I would, I'd be depriving myself of, you know, food and water and, and practicing for many, many hours. And then I would run inside and I would get like a sandwich and a Coke and some pickles or something and then run back outside and I would keep practicing. So I joked that I was almost unintentionally uh, training myself for ultra running. <laughs> As you mentioned pickles, there have been studies done on pickle juice to say that it actually helps prevent muscle cramping. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was doing that as a kid. Like that was the thing that I craved was uh, I wanted to have a Coke and pickles. You keep saying things that maybe want to change direction. And now that you've mentioned basketball, I noticed recently on one of your Instagram stories <laughs> that you had yourself with playing around with a basketball and you do look like a basketball player. I would guess that because of your drive and determination, that whatever sport you took up, you were going to excel at. <laughs> and the fact that you had a basketball at an early age and were playing around with it, what made you not go in the direction of basketball? Because I would think that any basketball coach that would see you <laughs> was going to be asking you or, or signing you up to the team. <laughs> Probably. Uh, I mean, I was pretty coordinated. I was good at every sport that I tried at a young age. I was one of those people that could play any sport basically I could pick up a golf club and swing it because I've got really long arms so I mean my, my parents my parents were both good athletes and they taught me how to play a lot of sports and um, but for me running was like it was like so natural like I just remember going out for track like our basketball team had to go out for track when I was in the seventh grade and I just remember running around the junior high and uh just could run and run and run and like I just didn't get tired and it felt like this is what I'm supposed to do and um, I think what sealed the deal for me was we uh, that following fall we had to choose to go out for either softball or cross country and all my friends were basketball players they all went out for softball and I was the oddball that went out for cross country and at that time like cross country was like the tough sport like nobody goes out for cross country like who does that? Like running is like punishment. Um, so I ended up choosing, I was like the only person on my basketball team that went out for cross country. And I remember being at my first cross country meet and all the other little girls looked like me. Like they were, I'm, I'm a string bean. Like I've got long arms and legs. And I just remember being at that, being at my first cross country race and thinking, okay, I think this is my sport. This is what I'm supposed to do. So uh, it was really not a tough decision for me to drop basketball. I guess the only thing is I grew a lot when I was in high school. So I'm a lot taller than I was when I, uh, when I played basketball. Um, and it's funny for me to pick up a basketball now because I still got those skills that I had. Um, but running, I, I feel like you've really just got to follow your passion and, and running for me was just such a natural thing. Do you strength train? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we've got our weights. We we actually have some weights here that I've been been doing some things while, while we're on vacation. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do exercises um, mainly just with my upper body, but also to work my hips and my hamstrings. Um, so like twice a week, I usually will. I have like a six exercises that I do that are upper body exercises. Right. Now, when I asked you about strength training, I was actually thinking thinking your legs because I was just wondering 
is your strength, your your running strength, is it in actual strength or is it in your efficiency and your economics? Yeah, that's a great question. I pr- probably both. I mean, I, I would think like we're talking about how I structure my training. Uh, I structure my training, you know, twice a day running that because that's the healthiest and most anabolic way. Uh, so I'm probably very structurally strong. Um, and I mean, that shows when I run for 24 hours. I mean, I was hammering at those last couple hours of that race. And, you know, other people are getting tired and fatigued, but I, I'm just not breaking down. So yeah, and I'm just wondering where that power comes from to keep you going yeah i don't i fatigue resistance you know i mean maybe there's some sort of genetic thing about me that uh, makes me unique but um but i mean i think a lot of it is probably i mean maybe maybe it's being a woman maybe hormonal or something that could be it yeah i i've kind of heard uh there i mean they just came out with a study here like a few weeks ago uh showing that at some point that women start to become faster than men yes and that there's, they, an interest, there's a fork in the road yeah yeah and that they speculate that it's because of estrogen and that estrogen helps to preserve our muscles from breaking down and getting fatigued and um, so i mean maybe there's something just being a woman maybe i have a uh, better fatigue resistance so and what about your engine do you know what your vo2 max is your lactate uh, threshold yeah i do i do um i have a very high vo2 max uh so i was tested in grad school it's like 67.5 uh it may i have no idea what it is now but um but they told me when i was in grad school that i have a very good vo2 max now when you say grad school what age were you when you when you got that figure uh like maybe 24 or 25. Okay. So yeah, you probably would have been good in the Tour de France. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like, I, I, I can't ride a bike. Well, well don't, don't, I, I wouldn't doubt me for anything, any sort of endurance. I mean, I actually, I actually learned, I took a course uh, to learn how to row a couple of years ago and I was actually rowing at the same, like just, I had a heart rate monitor on, so I was trying to go at like whatever 130 beats a minute or something. I was going at the same pace as the college level rowers, and it was my first time doing it. So I kind of said, wow, maybe I should try rowing. Maybe I could. Like I said, no matter what sport you tried, you probably would have excelled at. (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) Apart from running basketball and other sports, was there anything else outside of sport that you were involved in or or passionate about? (laughs) Uh, definitely. Uh, I mean, I grew up, I, I'm very musically talented. I come from a very musical family. Um, I, I grew up playing the piano. So um, I was pretty much trained on the piano. And, and then eventually I ended up picking up the French horn. And uh, I I want to say I was actually a musical prodigy on the French horn. Uh, I took a music test back in like the fourth grade or something like that. And I scored a perfect score. Uh, and I, I have like a sense of, uh, was it like perfect pitch? Um, and so they ended up giving me the French horn and I ended up being like a prodigy on the French horn. Um, so I actually had opportunities to go to college for, uh, for music on the, on the French horn. Um, and so, so yeah, this thing, things that people don't know about me, I have, I have this quirky talent cause I, I grew up as a pianist and was a very good French hornist, but I actually haven't played the French horn in like 20 years now. So, so is this an exclusive? <laughs> What's that? Is this an exclusive on the fourth person to actually break that news? Uh, yeah, I don't really talk about it. 
<laughs> my my music ability. Uh, I did tell Kamer. I did tell Kamer about it. So you might be the second person that I've done a podcast with about it. <laughs> when you mentioned music, for some reason I was picturing you with an electric guitar doing Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> yeah, at one at one point I went in to learn how to play the guitar, but uh, I didn't want to mess up my fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I was very sensitive of my fingers and just having uh having a good keep keeping the the skin on my fingers so so it was classical music you were playing <laughs> yeah I, I I laugh because it's been 20 years since I was a French hornist but um when I hear certain classical songs I, I think back and I'm like oh my gosh I played that <laughs> and also the classical music what music would you listen to oh gosh I liked everything uh I mean, my my sisters were older than me, and I grew up. My oldest sister Julie was um, ten years older than me, so she was a teenager back in the eighties when I was like, you know, three, four, five years old. Uh, so the MTV generation. So I grew up on a lot of eighties music, um, Madonna and Michael Jackson and Prince and U uh, two and uh, so so funny enough because Connor is ten years older than me. I should say nine and a half years older than me um so his musical tastes are the same as uh what i grew up on you know from because of my sister uh and so so yeah i uh i would say you know i was a child of the 80s and the 90s um i love i love rap music um because i was a basketball player and so my my team was really into rap and that kind of music um and then i had friends that were really into grunge and um yeah, I mean, all that like 90s type of music, I guess. So. And then at the weekend, you were playing classical music. <laughs> and then I was, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that's the funny thing is, I mean, my I'm so diverse. I'm so diverse in my music musical interests that I like just about anything. I actually didn't get into, I would say my favorite is Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. Um, I didn't get into like 70s type of music until I was in college. And um, see, my, my parents grew up in the 50s and the 60s. So they they grew up on the the bubblegum pop type, of, uh, you know, the, the cheesy type of uh, 50s and 60s music. So I, I had like a whole generation of the 70s that I didn't really discover until I was in, in college. And uh, I mean, I really just fell in love with like the hard rock and um yeah, that that ended up. So I feel like my musical interests have kind of evolved over time, and uh, now I'm kind of more into. I have a pump up playlist, and um, and I mean we've got like a Sirius XM radio, and uh, the the music that I like now is chill music. So like when we're driving in the car, I just like that uh, deep house type of music. When we're in the car, uh, I mean the chill music is like my station, but I also have my pump up playlist that has like uh that's kind of evolved over the past five years and um, every time i hear a new song that like inspires me um i put it on my pump up playlist so when i ran the 24-hour world championship the song that i like to fixate on is frank sinatra's come fly with me so if you ever listen to the lyrics for that uh he's like come fly with me come fly come fly away if all else fails and like i can't my my brain gets jumbled and I can't think of any song off of my playlist. I always think of Frank Sinatra. Well, this is fascinating and I'm glad I asked that question now. This is more interesting than the running. <laughs> 
I could probably talk all day. I could probably talk all day about beer and music. <laughs> well, the running gets a bit boring after a while, asking the same questions. But no, this is great. And you've got a lot more respect for me now with your Led Zeppelin than Pink Floyd. <laughs> yeah, I like just about anything. I mean, we could talk all day about like anything. I mean, I, I did a podcast here a couple of weeks ago. And we were talking about like 311 and uh, like 90s type of music. So A lot of people, when you ask what kind of music they like, they say everything. You really do like everything. Oh. Normally when somebody says that, it means they just can't make their mind up. They don't yeah. know what to like. Uh, I mean, being from Oklahoma, everybody probably assumed that I like country music, but I'm not really into country. Uh, I mean, my grandparents were really into like bluegrass. And so I like hearing like the banjo. I like the really old school type of country. Old, I don't know what you call that. Old old country, like 60s country or something like that. That's what my From the Appalachian Mountains and the, <laughs> the Cajuns. That kind of country. But uh, Garth Brooks is from Oklahoma and I oh. love Garth Brooks. So okay. good. You've just gone downhill a little bit now. <laughs> I mean, if I, I'm not Stop digging, really, stop digging. <laughs> I'm not really into that. You mentioned playing the piano, the French horn, and how talented you were at those. It seems to me that you are very much a high achiever. And I've noticed that trait <laughs> in a lot of athletes that perform quite well. Would you say that an important trait for a high performance athlete is to having a good mindset? Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, the, funny enough, uh, I was having a discussion with my sister and I actually grew up with a learning disability, which is something I haven't even really talked about before in podcasts, but I had read something, what is it um, to be, there's some sort of, I basically have a learning disability and I'm also extremely talented or extremely, extremely intelligent extremely intelligent. When I was young, I basically thought I was stupid. I had a central auditory processing disorder. And so my speech development was delayed. I didn't start talking until I was like three. And I had to go through speech classes. And when I started school, I basically thought I was stupid. And, um, and so I had to work extremely hard at school thinking that I was not very smart. And then they, I took an IQ test. And I found out I was actually extremely intelligent. So not only did I have a learning disability, but I was extremely intelligent. And so it was kind of this epiphany of, oh my gosh, you know, here I've been working so hard in school, but I'm actually very, very smart. So I ended up being put, not only was I taking speech classes thinking I'm stupid, but they put me in the gifted and talented program. I was basically different. I was a different person. I had a, and so I joke that maybe that somehow influenced my way of thinking. It's just different because I had to learn how to overcome my disability from a young age because I didn't want to come across as being stupid. It made me work really, really hard. And I think that, that that sort of work ethic, you know, has carried over, you know, as an athlete and, you know, music and all these things I've done in my life that, that I, I want to prove myself, you know, I don't want to be like a bad runner. I want to I wanna be good at everything I do. And so, yeah, it's just kind of carried over. So you had to, I suppose, learn how to learn. Yeah, because my brain processed information differently. I had to learn how to make those connections in my brain so to overcome my disability that I had. Um, but it didn't impact the cerebral part of my brain that I'm actually extremely intelligent as well. 
in, in fact, all through my education, I've always been somebody that has a different way of thinking about things. I'm, I'm the person that asks the questions that nobody thinks about. And I think it's just because my brain is wired differently because I, I'm both have this learning disability, but I'm also extremely intelligent. So, so you could probably do something without explaining how you did it. <laughs> Probably. And that's probably as well why you were excelling with the music. You were able to express yourself there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, like even even with music, um, because my brain is wired and I perceive sound differently that um, because I had this central auditory processing disorder that somehow it makes me a, a musical prodigy. I, I have no idea how to explain it. but <laughs> Why did you not continue with the music? Uh, Did your piano blow away in that tornado? No, no. Uh, I was really torn um, because I was I was a very good musician and athlete. And um, when it came to going to college, it was kind of like one had to go by the wayside. So, <laughs> and you couldn't bring your piano with you. <laughs> yeah, I was always torn in high school because I was an exceptionally good athlete. I was very, I was very good in school. I was a good athlete. I was a good musician. And I mean, it. the, the thing is to be a good musician, it just consumes you. And um, I felt like something just had to give. And I, for, for me, running was going to be my pathway to college. And um, I think like when I got the offers to go to college for music that um, I was going to have to be a music major and I didn't want to do that because um, I wanted to study biology and, and go the science pathway. Um, so I think it was kind of one of those things that I didn't want to study music. So It must have been a very hard decision to make because of the fact that you were good at both I don't think it was really that hard. I think I I enjoyed music and I was really, really good at it, but I just didn't see it as a career path. I kind of saw it more as a hobby. But I mean, now that I'm older, I've definitely had... I've had an interest in getting a French horn and getting back into it. Um, I mean, I've been listening to classical music, and when I hear the French horn, um, I mean, it's kind of like I perk up and I I remember what that felt like, like to per- perform on stage and to. Um, I, I mean, I was the first chair French horn that played the solos, and so when I hear when I listen to orchestra music and um, classical music, and uh, I hear the French horn, I can. I can like really wrap my head around like what they're feeling. So it's very hard to make a career out of sport. So <laughs> if there's anyone listening in that is faced with maybe some kind of a similar decision, what advice would you give? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, for for me, I had no idea that I was going to be this good at alternating. <laughs> like uh, I was at I was at a turning point when I turned thirty three that um I was going to basically retire from competitive running because I had done everything I could at the marathon, and getting into ultra running was uh just something I thought well hey you know I might as well try and see what happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was working full time in research at the time. And um, it was really a hard turning point for me because to find out that I'm born to do sports and that I could potentially do it professionally. I mean, that was something that never even crossed my mind. 
Um, and so it was a really hard transition, actually, for me, um, finding out that I was really, really good at ultra running and uh, trying to balance it with my full time job and research um, that I eventually had to I had to make some changes with my professional life at the time uh, to cut back my hours so that I could manage my training with my my day job. Um, and last year I was able to um, to finally quit my day job. <laughs> which was actually a really hard thing to do because I thought I would be working for the rest of my life in research. I, I mean, I had gone to grad school to, to learn how to do what I did. Um, but yeah, I mean, to find out that I'm breaking world records, I'm doing all these amazing things. I mean, I felt like I needed to follow that career path and um, getting into coaching and realizing that I can give back to the sport. I mean, that was, that was a realization that I get to follow my passion, not only me personally, but also giving back to others. So You mentioned following your career path. Would you say you followed your dream? <laughs> I would say I followed my dream and I followed my passion. Um, I think it's really important that other that everybody everybody's born to do something and uh uh when I give it I, I give a talk uh that I gave to Marshfield High School up in Oregon last fall. And um, the first slide on my talk, it's a famous quote, um, but basically the most important days of your life are the day that you're born and the day that you find out why. And so I found out why I was, I mean, I obviously we've all got many, many purposes for our, our um, for our existence and, you know, what we're born to do. Um, and so for me to find out I was born for ultra running, that it was kind of this epiphany and this moment of, oh my gosh, you know, I'm 33 years old, I'm born for this. And I felt like I needed to follow that. And, and running is my passion. And I think it's important to be passionate about what you do and to that. I mean, every day when I wake up to run, it's not a job. It's like joy. I enjoy running and I get out and, it, you know, I love to do it. And uh, it's really important to follow your passions and what you're born to do. So. And you become passionate about an activity as a result of the joy you get from the activity. And I'm now conscious of the fact that it's time for your second run and I'm standing in the way of your passion. <laughs> it's it's okay. I mean, I, I think that that's the, unique, that's the unique thing about me is I set no limits on what time of day I run. It could be three o'clock in the morning and I feel I wake up in the middle of the night and I feel like running. Um, I could go run here at, you know, 11 o'clock at night. Maybe we could go have dinner right now and then I'll go for a run. Um, so, I mean, I, I just, I, I set no limits on my day and when I run and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not feeling pressed at, with time at all right now so this is all good to me <laughs> I'm going to take that as a compliment because I've been here with you now for over two hours we've been talking off the mic and on the mic and you're not trying to get rid of me <laughs> and I was really really conscious of taking up your time so. no I'm pretty laid back with that kind of stuff so I mean we're, we're talking about eating Indian food and going for a run at 10 o'clock so I mean I I'm pretty flexible and I I don't I don't let things stress me out so I I mean I was anticipating you come over over here anyway so if you go for a run at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock what time would you go to bed at following that um, I mean, I, I usually have like a good meal after I go for a late night run and um, it actually helps me sleep better. So I'm I'm kind of a bit of a night out anyway. So, so I, the run wouldn't stimulate you and keep you awake? No, I pass out. I uh, maybe maybe some people like it would keep them awake, but it actually helps me to sleep. 
Um, in fact, I, I feel that if I don't run, I tend to be like wired all night. <laughs> you must have a very clear conscience. That's what's putting you to sleep so quickly. But yeah, if I, if I don't run, I'm like wired. Like I have to do it to get me to like calm down. Do you factor in recovery days or would you have rest days? Meaning maybe on recovery day you would still run, rest day you take totally off. Yeah, I rarely ever have a day completely off, but yeah. Do you, do you let it happen rather than plan it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll, I'll only take a day off if I'm just feeling like a truck hit me or something. But uh, like yesterday, I took a day off because uh, I found out I have pink eye and uh, my eyes were literally like crusted over and I could not see. <laughs> so it was a rare... Yeah, we had to go get medical help because uh, my eyes were just in such a bad state that I couldn't I couldn't see and I was in a lot of pain. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I like I rarely ever take a day off. I mean, I like after the 24 hour world championship, I think I took maybe two or three days off. Um, but I actually felt pretty good. I needed a wheelchair the first time I ran 24 hours, but this time I was moving pretty good. So and one of those days off was probably because you were traveling. So <laughs> that's, that's not really taking a day off. <laughs> yeah, that's because you have to take it. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's the hardest thing is with all the travel that I do now. I mean, I'll usually go try to get in a run before we travel and then I'll get in a run as soon as we get there. Um, but I, I'm pretty flexible. I mean, if I if I get somewhere and I just want to go to bed, I just will. Like, I don't really stress about it. So and what race are you training for now at the moment? That's a good question. Um, I mean, originally we were hoping to go for a 48 hour world record, but uh, with all this like coronavirus thing that's happening, uh, I think we're pretty much going to just fly back to the States now and um, we'll see what I end up doing next. But um, I would definitely like to go for the 100 mile, my 12 hour 100 mile world records, uh, try to improve those records. Uh, so there's the Centurion 100 in the UK in April. So we're we're probably going to commit to that. But uh, but yeah, well, <laughs> Connor's Connor's saying we haven't committed yet. But uh, yeah, we probably will. Um, but yeah, as far as big big goals uh, for this year, I mean, I'm trying to train for Comrades Western States double in June. Uh, which for me, I mean, I, I joke that uh, the, the comrades now is so short that it's almost like a warm up for anything else. Uh, but it's it's the downhill course this year. So I, I have to condition my quads pretty well for that. And um, and then just try to recover as best as I can to go do Western States. Uh, but then after that, um, yeah, I, I haven't I haven't fully decided what to do for the rest of the year, but um, I'm actually committed to UTMB in uh when is at the end of august um but yeah i mean i wouldn't rule out like changing my schedule um i know everybody wants me to come back to do the 100k um but we've thought about going somewhere else to go for um breaking seven hours for the 100k um so yeah we'll we'll see what happens uh if i can make a attempt at that that's quite a list and they're all very different <laughs> yeah Especially with utmb 
how would you train for that? Like, that's very specific. Uh, so, I mean, since since I was able to quit my job last year, and uh, we, we now live full-time up in Colorado, so we're uh, just south of Leadville a couple hours. Uh, so we're at high altitude, and we've got access to mountains that go up to, like, 14,000 feet. Um, so I, I see my career evolving into more trail and mountain running and more adventure running. Uh, but I, I wanted to go for as many of the world records as I could, uh, ranging, you know, from the, the well, technically 50 50 miles isn't uh, isn't an official world record distance, but um, I mean the from from basically 12 hours to a thousand miles is the world records that I wanted to get. Um, but then beyond that, I mean I'd love to the Western to to nobody's one comrades Western states and UTMB. So I would like to become the first person to win that triple crown. Uh, and I've already won the triple crown on the the road world championships. So that was that was a goal that I set for myself four years ago. Uh, so now that I've done that, uh, I feel like woohoo, like pretty excited about that. That now I can focus on some other you know amazing like triple quadruple crown type races so would i be right in saying that part of your drive or ambition is to be the best ultra runner that there ever has been oh absolutely i mean i i'm very blessed by my talent and what i've been able to do with all these world records right now and i mean it it's exciting for me the possibility of you know maybe i can go run utmb and you know do something amazing there uh for for me i mean getting into ultra running my whole goal was to win comrades and uh, i mean what do you do after you've like reached your number one life goal um you have to set more goals um so Move the goalpost. <laughs> you have to just keep going um so so yeah i mean i i look at the possibilities of you know becoming the first person to uh to say that i've won comrades western states utmb uh badwater spartathlon the big backyard ultra uh you know i mean it's it's hard enough i would say comrades is the hardest ultra in the world to win it's definitely the most competitive uh, because it, it brings out the African runners that are uh, crossover runners from the marathon. Um, so for me to have won comrades, that, that kind of seals the deal of the possibility of, you know, maybe saying that I could become the greatest of all time. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I want to follow in the footsteps of other amazing runners, but at the same time, I want to diversify myself as an athlete and to do things that no one else has done. And um, leave your own footprint. And leave my own footprint. So, I mean, right now I'm the first person who's won ultra world titles, you know, 50K, 100K, 24 hours. Uh, it would be pretty cool to, to, you know, diversify into more trail and, and to become the first to, you know, pull off some amazing triple crown there. So, well, how do you deal with the pressure that must be on you now going into these races? Yeah, I love pressure. I mean, I we're talking about, uh, I uh, you know, we didn't even talk about how I grew up as a dancer. Uh, I grew up performing on stage uh, musically and dance. Um, I learned how to, my, my dad was a very good free throw shooter. And uh, when I got into be, being a basketball player, the first thing he taught me was to be a good free throw shooter because free throws win championships. And so I'm the type of person that, you know, it comes down to the, the, the buzzer beater, you know, am I going to, am I going to make that, that free throw? And so I learned to be, to be focused and to perform under pressure. And I mean, that's, that's what, that's when I bring, that's what brings out the 
the best of me is when I'm at a world championship and I have the opportunity to go for a world record and I'm carrying my team. Uh, that's what brings out the best of me. And uh, yeah, I, I've, I, I like pressure. So Yeah, and as you mentioned, the free throw winning championships, you'd often see in the game of golf that somebody missing the shortest put yeah. because of the pressure. And it happens when we've supported Gaelic football. Yeah. Someone trying to kick the ball over the bar from a short distance and sometimes they miss it. Yeah. And that's all to do with pressure. Pressure. How do you mentally prepare yourself for that? Yeah, to be honest, like I just imagine like what I grew up in, uh, like we're talking about being a stage performer that I can just elevate myself. I can be calm and cool and collected under pressure. The first time I ran the 100K World Championship, I'm puking the final like 35K of the race. And I'm carrying my team, you know, the pressure's on me because I've been winning, been leading the race. And I start flashing back to, you know, being this kid in my driveway trying to learn how to shoot free throws like my dad taught me. And I just remember, you know, being able to focus and, you know, to have that focus and finesse to perform like in those moments uh, and I've always had that ability just you know having developed it from being a kid so and I'm lucky enough to have witnessed some of it but I still find it hard trying to figure out how you have that drive and that killer instinct because <laughs> to look at you you know you, your smiley face you just don't look as if you don't look that killer. person I gotta, I gotta put on my game face <laughs> but do you have a game face do I have a game face? No, you don't. You're always oh, smiling. I, I'm so, I guess uh, there's a good like Greta Garbo uh, quote. Uh, we'd have to look it up. But basically someone someone that smiles all the time hides a toughness that is scary, basically. Um, that I'm pretty good about concealing my toughness, I guess you could say. I mean, even, even as a kid, I mean, I was the type of kid that I was just always like really happy. Um, yeah, I, I conceal a toughness. I, and I think I get it from my dad and my grandpa. I mean, my, my grandpa, both my dad and my grandpa, they're big guys. They played college basketball. So they're big, tough, scary guys. Um, but my grandpa was shot twice and in, in both he was shot in both legs back in World War II. And so uh, he had two Purple Hearts. And he was a, he was a Marine. And he, as, as a kid, I mean, he used to show us his thumb and tell us that he could kill somebody with it. And so I got that from my grandpa. In fact, I even I even look like my they say of, of all the, the grandparents, I look like I look the most like my grandpa. So I feel like I am like the the, the reincarnation of my grandpa as as, as a woman. Um, and yeah, I mean I like yeah, I really just think I get it from my dad and my grandpa, so so the question of is it nature or nurture? <laughs> nature, nurture. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think about as a kid, like like we're telling these stories. I mean, I was doing crazy things as a kid to push my own human limits. So I definitely think there was a genetic component. Um, but yeah, as far as, you know, nurture, I mean, I've had to overcome a lot of things in my life. Like we're talking about the tornado that I had to go through. I had a lot of stress fractures when I was in college and uh, being told being told when I was in college that uh, I wasn't good enough to run Division One. Um, you know, I've just had a lot of people doubt me. Uh, there's, <laughs> in fact, Connor jokes, you know, when I, when I'm running the 24 hour world championship or going for a world record, there's people on message boards, you know, not believing that I can keep it up, you know, that I'm going out too fast. And Connor's telling me that during the races, he's telling me, you know, that they, they don't think I can keep this up, that I'm going out too fast. And, uh, that's just fuel for the fire. Yeah. You're I, saying, tell me more. 
tell me more. Get bring it on. Uh, I mean, even even at the the twenty four hour world championship, um, Connor, uh, what was it about twenty one hours into the race? Uh, he told me that I was going to surpass Scott Jurek. Uh, on the all-time list and so that was just like you know sticking sticking a hot poker in me <laughs> you know it was just like it just really lit a fire to to really motivate me to to keep to really dig deep um but yeah I mean I've got a I've got a toughness in me that like I just I guess I can still it very well I was in Brave the year that Scott Jurek set the American record I think that, that was back in 2010 yeah nice yeah. guy What's that? He's a nice guy. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty And nice. again, he looks very unassuming. You know, you wouldn't think that he has that killer instinct of driving him. Yeah, yeah. Just go, well, there you go. You don't judge the book by the cover. Don't judge a book by its cover, exactly. What book would you be? <laughs> what would I book? What book? I, I think Lore Running's a pretty good book. I think that pretty much uh, characterizes me. But if, if you had to say what song would I be, I would say Led Zeppelin's Ramble On. <laughs> now it's funny you should say that because that song actually came into my mind just earlier and I was going to actually send that to you later on. Oh, that's my all-time favorite Leaves song. Leaves are falling all around yes. time I was on my way. Yes. It, yeah. I feel like it totally describes what an ultra is all about, you know, that you got to ramble on cuz you're on your you're you're on your way, you know, and and that's actually based on Lord of the Rings. Yes. So, so I can imagine, you know, I can imagine them on their journey and, you know, that being like what an ultra is all about too, so. I'm stuck for words now because I'm trying to follow <laughs> on from that. <laughs> I just have uh, Led Zeppelin playing in my head now. I know, moment. I know, me too. <laughs> from a classical pianist. <laughs> yeah. Before we finish up, is there anything else? <laughs> I've already said that, haven't Any, I? Is there anything, anything else, else that you want to add? Yeah, There's I mean, probably lots and lots and lots. There's there's so many things. I mean, I think about when I when I was three years old, so I had no sense of fear. Like absolutely no sense of fear as a kid. I like that part of my brain just doesn't register. So when I was a kid, I um I have two things that I remember when I was about three years old. Uh, I touched a hot stove because I wanted to find out how hot it was. So I was standing by my mom as she was cooking on the stovetop. And that's the only way to figure out how hot it is. <laughs> Some things you have to learn by doing. Exactly, exactly. And I actually have a scar on my finger, on the top of my finger from when from when I touched the stove. But I just remember standing by my mom as she was cooking on the stovetop, feeling the heat coming off the stove. And I reached up to touch it. And burned my finger and I have a scar on it. And and I remember my mom, you know, scolding me like, don't do that, you know. But, uh, but I mean, how many other little kids, you know, would touch a stove? Like, you know, I had like, I had no like fear at all. Well, that's kind of carrying through to now because that's like being told you can't do something. Yeah. And you're not going to be told. You're going to try it and then prove that oh, you, you know we shouldn't be doing it you can't do it yeah exactly yeah I I mean I'm the type of person that that people tell me oh don't do that you know or everybody thinks I'm going out too fast don't do that you know women women aren't supposed to be courageous and brave and uh to be uh to what to, to race with aggression I'm a woman who races with aggression and it makes men feel uncomfortable and intimidated and intimidated that I go out with them and uh and that people don't like that people don't like a woman that stands out and that does everything 
everything different from all the other women. Like we're supposed to hold back and race with the other women. So I, I've had to deal, deal with this chatter on the side since I've gotten into the sport that she's not supposed to be there. She shouldn't be up there. She can't do this. And I, I take that as fuel for the fire to just... And you're changing the rules of the game. I am. I'm racing. I'm a woman racing with aggression and uh, and I'm succeeding. I'm actually nailing it, you know, and, and so I'm showing that, that women actually can and we can put ourselves out there and we can be up with the top men, so... Yeah, most definitely. And that has been proven by people like yourself. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's just going to usher in more women to to keep doing amazing things and putting themselves out there. Yeah, it's great. And it's only now that in Ireland we're starting to see that a lot more women are becoming involved in ultra running. And the difference is starting to show now that we are becoming a much stronger team now. Yeah, yeah. I having met all of you guys at the World Championship, uh, I was like, "Holy cow!" Like Irish has an amazing, like Irish, uh, amazing World Championship team. And I had met many of the Irish runners at the hundred k World Championship too. And I think, I think they only had a couple of uh, guys when I ran there. Was it four years ago? But uh, yeah, I mean, you guys have a good, strong team. So was that an Alicante? Oh, not Alicante. Uh, in, Los, uh, Los Alcazares. Uh, it was in the Win- Winshoten. Oh, Winsh- oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I must have been there. Was it, is it Keith White? Oh, Keith White, yeah. Keith yeah. is actually going over to the Anglo-Celtic plate now in May. Keith has been played with injury, so hopefully he's back for good now. Yeah, yeah. He took a break and uh, we're actually coaching Keith now. So uh, I think he wants to... I think he maybe holds him the, the Irish record for 100k. He holds the Irish record for 100k, yes. And he went out to try and, uh, I think it was get under seven hours in his last 100 kilometer race. It didn't go too well, but he he's on the mend. Yeah, yeah. And he, he was he was somebody that I, I think I raced with at the World Championship four years ago. So uh, maybe we can pace each other under seven hours. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was definitely at the race then in Winscotton then because I, I was there racing with him at the time. Oh, okay. Wow. Interesting. I wonder if I met you. I might. I, I don't remember. I was very quiet. <laughs> You're quiet. <laughs> we'll wrap it up now. And thanks very much for your time. And yeah, good luck with you. the next race. Thank you. I'm not sure when we will definitely be meeting again because there's no world championships this year in 24 hour. Or are you uh, going to yeah. the 100k? Uh, we'll see what happens. Okay. Well, yeah, I might we'll see you at the 100k. Happens. And if not, sure, we'll be crossing paths again next year. Yeah, definitely. I want to come back for 24 hours. Or maybe even the next time you're in Ireland. Yeah, there you go. If somebody wants to contact you or access your online coaching service, how will they make contact? Uh, yeah, so they can contact us through our coaching website, which is runwithcamille.com. Uh, we've also got an email address, which is camille at runwithcamille.com. And what about social media? Uh, yeah, so I'm very active on social media. I like to interact with people. And so I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my handle is at run Camille. And then I've also got an athlete page uh, that people can look me up. And that's on Facebook? Yeah, on Facebook. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for your time. And for anyone listening in, if you enjoyed this podcast or any of the others, you might consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts or you can subscribe and download. Thank you. Cool. Thanks.